You may be seated. <clears throat> we all do extol thee, thou leader triumphant. And that has never been anyone on earth except the Lord Jesus when he was here for a short while, and it never shall be. Our leader and commander is in heaven and sits at the right hand of God on Mount Zion above and has an army that cannot be numbered of angels at his beck and call. And all the spirits of just men made perfect, as I've mentioned before. May the Lord always keep our minds in the right place, especially in these times. These times are no different than times before, except that they're much easier and much gentler and much better than ever before. America is still a great place to live in 2020. You know, it was the the 60s that the world was going to come to an end. And I was a little boy and heard so many rumors about the world coming to an end in the 60s. And it never did. It didn't come to an end in the 70s. And here we are, 60 years later, fat and happy, prosperous and protected and at peace, with these little tiny games being played left and right as they have always been in all nations at all times in every place. As long as there are sinners on earth, there's going to be problems among people. Thank you, Newell, for reminding the congregation to go back to the Word of God. Thank you for sharing the personal story of you and your wife, being troubled by listening to anyone. It doesn't matter what venue you pick it from. It doesn't matter if it's Tucker or Rush or any of them. None of them are Bible Christians. None of them have your best interest at heart. All of them are seriously distracted with the foolish things of this life. They're playing little games in comparison to the war. But thankfully, we love the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name is faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. He brings the war to his enemies. They don't have to bring it to him. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Thank you. A few words of God. Maybe one word out of a verse. Maybe one verse out of a short passage. Maybe a short passage out of a section of Scripture should be able to feed your soul and light you up to have great faith and hope in all times. Thank you, brother, for your prayer. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I wish that all men could maintain proper perspective at all times. The devil wants us to lose proper perspective at all times because he has, at all times, seeking to destroy whom he can. So he's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour by distracting us one way or another. Some men get distracted by one thing and other men get distracted by other things. Some men get distracted by bodily exercise. Other men get distracted by politics. They're all games. That little body that you think you're working on, wait until we take a picture of it without any clothes in your casket. And it's, it's racing there so quickly. All you got to do is take three days off and you can tell the difference. Drastic differences in just a few days. It's amazing because death is just consuming us. And everyone gets distracted. They get distracted with things. They get distracted with a job. They get distracted with news. They get distracted with family. They get distracted with money. All of it's a distraction. Those are just means to an end. And always the preeminent goal has got to be kept before our eyes. And that is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the furtherance of his kingdom, the love of his gospel, and the service of his church. Life is so simple for a Christian. So simple. The Lord's in charge of everything outside of our control. He controls. So everything's 
in control on our behalf better than we could control it. There's no man present or group of men present that could vote to do things better than God does them, and he's doing them. Amen. So everything is just peachy. Right. All we do is our reasonable service and go to bed and sleep and get up and shout, leader triumphant. Amen. Revelation chapter 5. You know it well. I don't want to preach it or be distracted too much by it, but it is the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ when he arrived in heaven after his ascension. This is a true inauguration. Every other inauguration only lasts four years and is juvenile in comparison to this one. This one lasts forever. And the company that was there was not 10,000 or even 50,000. If you can get 50,000 to an inauguration, millions are here. 10,000 times 10,000 angels are at this inauguration or this coronation. That's 100 million. And each one of them is greater than the entire U.S. Army. These angels are. Do not be distracted. You and your buddies will never change things. God changes things. God raises up rulers and puts down rulers. No one else does. We simply use the given means that he's told us we may use, and we go to bed and sleep. And we get up and shout, leader triumphant. I say again. Revelation chapter 5. God is sitting on his throne with a book in his hands, and it is sealed with seven seals. And a strong angel proclaims in verse 2, who is able to open it? And John weeps. John wept because there was no man found in heaven, earth, or beneath the earth that could open the book in the right hand of Almighty God. But then while John's weeping, he's comforted by an elder that the lion of the tribe of Judah, do you want to put your trust in a lion? Put your trust in the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah hath prevailed. So he did something. He won some victory that gave him the right, the privilege, and the power to open that book in the, from the right hand of Almighty God. And then John beheld, in verse 6, a lamb as it had been slain. So the Lion of the tribe of Judah appears as a slain, bloody lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, representing the seven spirits of the living God and his presence with the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and took the book out of God's hand. And when he had done that, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, which represents the church of God, Old Testament and New, tw twelve times two, twenty-four elders. And they sung a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Amen. We're the victors. Amen. We're the complete and total and final victors. Amen. Jesus Christ is the complete and total final victor. He's our leader triumphant. We just sang about that. Let's extol him. Amen. Let's extol him. Right. And extolling anyone else should never even come close to our leader triumphant. And so they sung a new song. Now when we look at this passage, this passage contains in it a book. And in that book, we understand to be the everlasting covenant of, the salva of salvation by grace. The, the everlasting covenant of grace is in that book. Included in it are the beneficiaries being the Lamb's book of life. Because when we need to ask these questions, who has the book? 
Almighty God, the judge of all flesh, who only can open the book, the Lord Jesus Christ and Him slain as the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. When did He open it? When He ascended up to heaven after prevailing in His death on the cross. How did He appear as a Lamb slain? What did the church sing of Him but redemption? So it's the everlasting covenant of redemption. What did angels say He had done? Angels said in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So this is in reference to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ that put the everlasting covenant into force. And it is the drama climax for the Lord Jesus Christ to die, to be raised again, to ascend up into heaven, and to be crowned victor, and then to sit down at God's right hand. That's Revelation 5. It's a wonderful chapter. Some of you love it very much. I I wish that everyone would love it. And I wish that everyone would think about this inauguration at all times and think about it properly so that any other inauguration becomes a non-event. An event that we see as a non-event in comparison to this inauguration. Now turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. We understand that that book that was in the right hand of Almighty God is the book of the everlasting covenant, all the terms of it, all the blessings promised in it, the last will and testament of Almighty God put into force by the death of Jesus Christ, and it has the name of all the beneficiaries. That's what a last will and testament does. That's what a covenant does. It lists the beneficiaries, and it lists the benefits that those beneficiaries are to get by the work of the testator. And so we have God and Christ working together from before the foundation of the world, putting our names down, as you heard in prayers already this morning. And we should rejoice in this event and this covenant and this testament and this contract, this compact, this agreement between God and His Son for us. It's why we're here. It's the basis of our salvation. Now in Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to read another five verses to you. But I do not want you being distracted by worrying about the fulfillment of these five verses. I think it should be rather obvious to you that it is at the end. But I don't want you to be thinking about that. I want you to be thinking about the glorious scene that I'm about to read to you and about a particular thing in this glorious scene because it's the only use of this word in the whole book of Revelation. In the whole book of Revelation, there's only one use of a T word and no use of a C word. And I'm speaking of testament and covenant. And here we go. Just rejoice in the scene that God wants you to have of the glory of His kingdom. Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give Thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and are to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and hast reigned. 
and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Amen and amen. I think that would make the weather channel there at the end of verse 19. But when we get this vision of this glorious event and this climactic occasion by the victory of Almighty God and His Son, the Lamb, over all their enemies to reward us, small and great, and to reward the prophets, we see into the temple of God in heaven, the place where God is worshipped, that He has an ark. Because that ark that Moses made was an obscure shadow and type of what Moses saw from heaven. The Bible tells us that in the book of Hebrews. Everything on earth was just a small, scaled-down, carnal, earthly, wooden, two-by-four, coated with gold picture of what is in heaven. And what's in heaven is an ark, and in it is his testament. And you know it's not the Old Testament, because this is the New Testament. It's the everlasting covenant by which we're saved. And so when you get a glimpse into the very innermost part of the worship of God, you see there an ark of a covenant that God made for us. And it has all the rewards, small and great, that are going to be handed out, and it has all the punishments and the destruction of the enemies of the people of God that are going to be handed out as well. I want you to love the covenants of God if you can't tell. It should move you mightily, for the good and bad circumstances around it are glorious. It must be the everlasting covenant in Christ for its timing, for its glory, and for its preeminence of the worship of God, because everything is centered in the Lord Jesus Christ in the drama that God has planned from the foundation of the world. Right. Now, some of you are studying the 70 weeks of Daniel, chapter 9. The last four verses of Daniel, chapter 9, tell us about the 70 weeks prophecy, and some of you are studying that between our services. And I commend you for that. But I hope that you remember that that is the passage in the Old Testament that tells us about Messiah. The Messiah is going to come in that time frame of 490 years, and that Messiah would confirm something with many for a week. What will he confirm? The covenant. The Bible's about the covenants of God. And so I want to share with you in a few weeks, and today we're going to get it introduced, and we're going to go as far as we can, the covenants of God. And I want to make it as simple as I can and profitable for your souls. I had a special meeting with the Lord on Saturday morning in brilliant sunshine. Was Saturday a decent day in your calendar of weather? Was it, one of, was it the best ever? I always want to make it the best ever because that's what I tell the Lord. This is the best you've ever done. This is the most beautiful blue sky I've ever seen. This sunshine is the most glorious and it warms me like no other. And I love to tell him that. But Saturday morning was beautiful. And I had a special meeting with the Lord. 
in brilliant sunshine. And I wrote you yesterday and told you that you ought to do the same thing that I'm talking about right now. Brother Newell did it in just a slightly different way. I want you to remember and find and go use whatever touches you the fastest and best about the glory of God. If it's a sunrise, then get up on time tomorrow. If it's a sunset, then make sure you're there to see it tonight. If it's the moon, if it's a full moon, put it on your calendar and don't miss the next one. If it's the ocean side, take a trip this afternoon. If it's a mountaintop, take a trip in a different direction this afternoon. But go see the glory of God. Go see the glory of God and whatever makes you feel very small and Him very big. Those are the things that I love that make Him big and me small. And the bigger he gets and the smaller I get, then this takes on greater value. And I couldn't tell him, though I tried. And I tried out loud. I sang to him. I sang to him, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, and told him I did not understand why in the world he would ever enter into a covenant with me. But he has entered into a covenant with me. I'm a beneficiary. He hasn't entered into a covenant with me that I need to do such and such in order to obtain such and such. He entered into a covenant for me that Jesus has to do such and such for me to obtain his blessings and benefits. Promising them the universe at the cost of his son. He has promised us the universe at the cost of his son. And he has written the details to us in a book called the Bible. And why would he enter into a covenant with rebel sinners? And I hope that when you're there in that moment of smallness, that you tell them that you're the worst of them all. Because that makes them even bigger and better. And that's what I want you to do with these covenants. Some of you wish you were married. Most of you are married. And you've entered into a covenant. And you appreciate it. When she said yes, you were glad. When she said, I do, you were gladder. And when she did what she said she would do based on her yes, you were gladder. So you know about covenants, but God's made a covenant. Amen. God's made a covenant right. for us to inherit the universe, and His Son performs the conditions so that we preach unconditional eternal life Amen. and prove it seven different ways, that the seven different ways are categories and collections of large numbers of scriptures. I want you to have a special meeting with the Lord. It's a choice. I had to rip myself away from his Bible. Rip myself away from outlines. Rip, rip myself away from emails. And just get out there. I have a special spot. You should have a special spot. I have a special spot. The spot works all winter. I have a special spot. And I can bask in that sun as it comes up and tell him about the glories of his son, S-O-N. Find your spot and go meet with the Lord and try to tell him how thankful you are for the covenant that he entered into for your benefit. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's glorious grace. Amen. Let it overwhelm you. You're on a mountaintop. You should have a better spot than me. I'm at sea level. <coughs> Practically, I'm looking at, you know who I'm looking at. I'm looking at Mr. Hendersonville, North Carolina. Mr. Mountaintop, Jeter Mountain Man. Any one of you in here, have your spot and go glorify the Lord. He has entered into a covenant with us. That is a binding contract. 
He's made it very formal and official. So formal and official has God entered into his covenant with us that sometimes he uses an oath to convince us how serious he is about it. And he committed his son to it, the blood of his son, his only son, his only begotten son. We're so blessed. He's so glorious. And the Bible is about his covenants. The Bible is about his covenants. The first three quarters of your Bible is called the Old Covenant, isn't it? Well, we call it the Old Testament, you say. Yes, but the the favorite Bible word is covenant. Testament's only used a few times. It's the Old Covenant. And then one quarter of your Bible is the New Covenant. It's the better covenant. And oh, yes, he wants you to know it's the better covenant. And he says better and better and better and better and calls the old, base, weak, beggarly, earthly, rudimentary, elementary, carnal, sensual. It's pitiful in comparison to what we have in the new. And we live on this side of the great covenant divide of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and his apostles. You should, whether it's sunrise or oceanside or mountaintop, consider the covenants. If it were not for God's covenant to not flood the earth again, you would be a young fossil. I want you to embrace it with me. I, I get a lot of emails when there's, email, when there's rainbows seen in Greenville County. And I appreciate them. And my wife gets texts for rainbows. Why, why are rainbows meaningful to you? Because they are a token put in the clouds by Almighty God, I made a covenant. I have obligated myself. I will never do that again. And you may count on it, and I will remind you of it, and remind me of it, so that when I see it, when you see it, we'll both know, I'll never do that to you again. Is that what our God did? That's our God. You can talk about the refraction of light and anything you want to about light. I couldn't care less. All I care about is that when I go outside as a simple little child, I can look up and see multicolored band in that sky and bow, called a bow, right. and uh, I'll put it in the clouds to remind you that I'll never do that again. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Every month we raise a cup in memory of a testament or a covenant. Right. This cup is the New Testament. Could be. This cup is the New Covenant because it's usually called a covenant. In the, in the Bible. David found great comfort in his death, not in his family tree, but in the everlasting covenant. Yeah. And I want every one of you to think about that and to embrace that. David said in his deathbed, the Bible wants us to know, these be the last words of David, though my fo- the, although my house be not so with God, he had just described a perfect ruler. Though my house be not so with God, Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. And it is all my desire and all my salvation, although he makes it not to grow. It is very limited, running down through my family tree, and it's going to end up in one man on the throne of God forever. And it's all my salvation, all my desire. Today we are thinking about many things, and I will have to address a few things in an hour or two, but I want you to remember what, the, what men of God say. This is all my desire. Amen. Now that is not that David didn't have any other desires, but in comparison and in emphasis, it was his only desire. You know, a man from a pastor from India wrote me yesterday and wanted to know what it meant to, set, to, to uh, make your treasures in heaven and no treasures on earth. Confused by it. Because he knows that from the Proverbs and other things that are taught from this church, we're supposed to save money. 
which is laying up treasures on earth. But it's a matter of emphasis, and it's a matter of priority, and it's a matter of importance. The things on earth should never compete. They should never compare to the things of heaven. The Star-Spangled Banner should not even register on your ability to appreciate music and praise in comparison to crown him with many crowns. They have to be in two totally different universes. They are not in the same universe. There's no American in heaven. There's no American flag in heaven. Sorry, I don't want to disappoint you. You know, and I know we, I grew up in a church that had a Christian flag on one side and an American flag on the other side. They're not even cousins. Well, eh, I, I hate flags. I mean, the whole idea of a Christian flag is ridiculous. But the point that I'm trying to make to you is, is emphasis. Is emphasis. Right. Love the covenants. David said, it's all my desire. That, that was my point. All my desire is that I might be found in the covenant of God with me through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all my salvation. Even though he doesn't make it grow. You know, we're going to be disappointed with our earthly families. David was very disappointed with his earthly family. And he knew that it was just going to come down through one of them, or two of them, both out of Bathsheba. And the rest were cut out. They're foolish sons he had. Wicked sons he had. But it came down to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that covenant that is in Christ should be the most important thing to us. The Apostle Paul ends the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is indeed a glorious book about the new covenant, but he ends it with, Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Amen. I want you to love his covenants. If I don't get any farther today, I don't care. I'm content with it. I already knew I was in trouble well before this morning. Your Bible has two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament that I've already mentioned to you. And yes, the first part covers three quarters of your Bible and the second part covers one quarter. The first part covers 4,000 years of world history and the second part covers 2,000 years of world history. If you look at the, the divide between the Testaments in your Bible, let, just go back there to where Ma Malachi ends and Matthew begins, where the Old Testament ends, and the New Testament begins. What's the last word in the Old Testament? And it's a perfectly appropriate word, arranged by God's providence. What is it? Curse. Because that's what the old, that's all the Old Testament could give you was a curse. What is the first verse of the New Testament? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Oh, what a, Can I stir you up a little bit? I wish I could break school right now for 30 minutes and have you find some spot on the property. The sun's not shining. It'd be a dismal one. Let's, let's make it right here from the Word of God. The divide between the covenants is curse, the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. the son of David all my desire and all my salvation, right. the everlasting covenant that includes my progeny, the Lord Jesus Christ, right. to be my Savior and my Lord, the Lord said unto my Lord. David knew full well he was his priest 
Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I want you to love the covenants. You should bless and praise God that you live on this side of the great covenant divide. My goal is a simple study for most hearers in our church, right down into our youth and maybe some of our children, though it may disappoint some deeper students that have foolishly engaged themselves, like I have in times past, in books that complicate the covenants with all their esoteric and heretical teachings about them because it's actually quite simple. It's God's formal obligation to bind himself on behalf of men. Sometimes it's an individual man. Sometimes it's a group of men. Sometimes it's the church of the Old Testament. Sometimes the church of the New Testament. And sometimes the whole family of the elect from either testament. It's, we, I want to make it as simple as I can for you. It can be discouraging studying the covenants when they're complicated beyond Scripture. Right. Simplicity in Christ is important. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Does your pastor love a flyby before a football game when there's members of the armed forces there saluting the flag and there's a flyby that squeezes your spleen? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But it's never brought tears to my eyes like meeting the Lord in my spot and thinking about his covenant. I want you to keep the things different. If the love of being an American even gets close to your love of being a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. They can't be close. They're not close. God's going to burn this nation up as fast as he's going to burn up Japan. Do not forget it. We're strangers and pilgrims here. But I just told you, I like a flyby. I love the sound of it. I just, a little louder. Could you guys hit your afterburners? I love it. However, I want to love the King of Kings, and I want to go from whenever the Lord reached down and grabbed me until the day I die, that I love my leader and commander in heaven above all others. Amen. And the sound of his coming with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, I look forward to more than any other sound, and no other sound can compare. Right. And we want to keep that priority at all times. Because if we lose the priority, our prayers don't matter and they don't get to heaven. We want to keep the right priority. If we keep the right priority, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, the Lord will take care of everything else. Right. You say, well, we could die as martyrs. What a blessing. Amen. They're in a special place in heaven. Right. We're not going to go off for ourselves, but it wouldn't be the worst thing that could happen to us. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Would to God... Paul writing the Corinthians, verse 1, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That is every honest minister's thoughts right there. That is every honest minister's heart right there. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and bear with me. I'm jealous. I'm jealous, the Apostle Paul said. I'm jealous, your pastor says. For I have espoused you to one husband, not two, one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ in a heavenly kingdom and a heavenly spiritual marriage. One, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. 
But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so there's my goal on preaching through the covenants, is I want you to know the simplicity that is in Christ. And they are, the covenants can be made simple, and I want to do that for you. The context here is the Apostle Paul having to go against Jewish legalists because you only have to read to the second half of this same chapter and he starts defending himself that he was quite a Hebrew himself. Notice verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. And so he's making a comparison there because a lot of heresies come from confusing the covenants of God. Fact. Let me get this one out, and you're going to hear this one a few times. Fact. There is only one way to be saved in any dispensation for any man. God's grace in Christ. Period. 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 There is only one way to be saved in any dispensation for any man. God's grace in Christ Jesus. Or should we play around with five different ways? We could have the patriarchs being saved one way for 2,500 years before the law of Moses. Then we could have the Old Testament way of salvation under Moses for 1,500 years. Then we could have, of course, our way of the New Testament, but of course, it would be decisional regeneration. Then we could have salvation in the tribulation because for seven years, we got to have 144,000 Jewish missionaries. I can't believe I ever said it. I can't believe I ever heard it. I can't believe I ever believed it. We have 144,000 Jewish missionaries running around for a fourth way of salvation. And then, of course, they're still wicked in the earth during their so-called millennium. And surely we want to get them saved if we're in the perfect world of the millennium, but they're still wicked around. Unbelievable. Go read a Schofield Bible. He's so messed up. That's confusing the covenants. There's only one covenant of salvation, and it is the everlasting covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant are just ways of administration and of revelation of that one covenant. That's what I want to teach you. I I want you to be seeing the everlasting covenant everywhere. The New Testament is the administration of local churches and knowing the salvation that is in the Son of God better than the Old Testament, and it's the administration and revelation of that one underlying covenant that every man has been saved by that's ever been saved or ever will be saved. They are not different ways of getting saved. They are different ways of worship, different ways of revelation, different ways of administration for the people of God. You say, do you have a couple verses on that everlasting covenant? Well, I've quoted two to you. 2 Samuel 23, 5. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation, all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Now you've got to back up a long time before David to have God telling Jacob on his deathbed to make this prophecy about his fourth son. The scepter 
shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Way before, way before David. It was already settled which tribe of Israel was going to have the Lord Jesus Christ and it was going to come through Judah. And then David knew all about that. Then I gave you Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Look at Acts chapter 2. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Let's look at some of God's operations in eternity and some of the exercise of His will in eternity that make up this everlasting covenant. Does the Bible tell us in the book of Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 that the names that are in the book of life were written there before the foundation of the world? Does it say? Yes, it does. Is there anyone here that has ever sung the song, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory? Have you ever sung that song, Sharon? I'm sorry to give it away who I was looking at. Oh, we used to, it was number 250 in Inspiring Hymns. Am I right? Do you remember? There's a new name written. No, there isn't a new name written down in glory. The names were written down in glory before the foundation of the world in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8 says so. Amen. And it, if they were written down at any other time, it wouldn't make sense with the rest of the Bible, which tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and God set his purpose and grace upon us before the world began. It all makes sense when we look at it the right way. Thank you, Lord, for putting the pieces of your puzzle together. Amen. Acts chapter 2. Oh, I remember these verses from a long time ago and rejoicing in every word of them. Verse 22 to get the sentence. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Oh, Peter is a different man. When a man's full of the Holy Ghost, he's a different man. This isn't a man afraid of a little maid at a fireside. Here's Peter on, on fire, literally. Yeah, he had a tongue of fire on his head. 222, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. What a glorious statement in the first sermon by the inspired Peter under the power of the Holy Ghost. Notice in verse 23, Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was the greatest political and legal travesty in the history of the world that Pilate would have a man crucified that he knew was innocent just because he was being pushed around a little bit by the Jews that the Romans hated. But it was no travesty. There is no travesty in this world that is not the perfect purpose of the Almighty God. This is the worst that ever happened in the history of the world, and yet it was according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Do you love those words and the ring of those words? The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God knows that bringing about any set of first causes, what second and third causes are going to arise in his government of the world. But it all begins with his determinate counsel. It did not begin with his foreknowledge and then result in determinate counsel. It begins in his determinate counsel. God has determined in his eternal counsel what is going to take place in this world. And we rest in that. Look at chapter 4 and verse 28 on the same subject of the crucifixion of our Lord. Don't, there's so much emphasis made 
on the Security Council of the United Nations meeting. Are you kidding? Do you really worry about that? What about this one? The Determinant Council of Almighty God. That's, a, that's the one I want to read about. I want to find every fragment in the Word of God about the Determinant Council. And he doesn't tell us too much because he says the secret things belong unto the Lord thy God. Amen. The revealed things belong unto us and to our children. But I'm glad he reveals a little bit. And right there was some. That Jesus being crucified was according to the determinate counsel of God. And that counsel was so certain and that son was so valued that death couldn't hold him. Could not be holding of it. Chapter 4 and verse 28. Let's get, verse, let's get the sentence. Verse 27, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, there in prayer the apostles, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now that is quite an international conspiracy. We've got Romans and Jews conspiring together in different high offices of Herod and Pontius Pilate. One announced the king of the Jews, and, and the other the governor of Judea with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. There's a determinate counsel, and it's just changed around a little bit. Whatever thy counsel had determined to be done is the determinate counsel of God. And when God determines something, it happens. Right. Chapter 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, verse 18, Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. You know Ephesians chapter 1. I don't need to turn you there. We were chosen in Him when? Before the foundation of the world, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. That's what Almighty God did. But I want you to come over there anyway because I want you to see verses 9 and 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 having made known unto us the mystery of His will. We get to know the mystery of God's will, of what His will was and His eternal counsel, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. God has good pleasure of things He purposes in Himself that are going to take place. And He says in verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. There is no counsel that you need to worry about anywhere at any time. This is the counsel. And this is the counsel we want to bow before and give all the homage and honor due to it and subject ourselves to the king of this counsel and its almighty God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. There is no one on earth that can do what his own will wants to do. As our president has found, there's enemies that can stop him. There's enemies that can stop our Congress. There's enemies that can stop our SCOTUS. But no one can stop the King of Kings. Right. No one's ever stopped him. No one ever will stop him. Amen. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Amen. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony and gospel of Jesus Christ, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. That's the determinate counsel of God, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's why we want to live on this side of the great covenant divide, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. That's the greatest office on earth right there, was to have been the apostle Paul, to have been a preacher of this information to Gentiles that were polytheistic idiots. What a tremendous privilege for the apostle Paul. Now this long sentence that I just read to you begins with a therefore, and that therefore is there for a reason. And the reason that therefore is there is because of the seventh verse. And I want to address every single one of you. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed. Don't you be fearful, Timothy. But you have power. You understand the authority that you represent and the authority and the power of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and of love and of a sound mind. And that's how we ought to live. And it's based on what comes next by the therefore. Right. Therefore, this is how we live without fear, is to understand the eternal counsel that took place before the world began, and we are the beneficiaries of it. Amen. Covenants are contracts or compacts to govern how persons or parties relate to each other. A covenant in the Bible is often the rules for religious worship of God by different people at different times. Covenants in the Bible can be promises by one to covenants can be promises by one to another, like God to us, with or without conditions. Some of God's covenants are conditional, like the nation of Israel and the land, the, the piece of sand there at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Covenant equals testament as a simple synonym. Testament adds another little angle or facet at times by being the last will and testament of a man who's bequeathing his assets after his death. Covenants and testaments are big in the Bible. Covenants appear 275 times, testaments only 13. Just keep that in mind. Usually it's covenant in the Bible. You have made and appreciate covenants. They provide security and enforce promises. We like our marriage covenant. We have an extensive one. If you have a mortgage, it's a covenant. If you rent an apartment, your lease is a covenant. Those experienced in business or relationships know that a commitment in writing is good. God gave us a commitment. Can you believe we have it in writing, in our language? Writing isn't necessary for a covenant. Many are implied and understood. Baptism is a covenant. You're covenanting with the Lord Jesus Christ that you're going to rise to walk in newness of life and serve him as a disciple. Church membership is a covenant by the promises that you make of how you're going to conduct yourselves toward the rest of the church by the New Testament. There it is, by the New Testament, by the New Covenant. I want you to love covenants. They're binding formal contracts of promises and duties for your security. For your security. We must be careful making covenants just like making vows because covenant breaking is one of those sins that are not convenient in Romans chapter 1. God's covenants are a different thing. The infinite Jehovah binding himself for men. Credible. They're different in content. A marriage or a mortgage is quite inferior to eternal life and inheriting the universe. I don't even like comparing them. It's, so it's different content. 
How about the different certainty? The faithful God that cannot lie enters into covenant. And he wants you to know that, for it is impossible for God to lie in Hebrews chapter 6. But just in case you're still doubting, he confirmed it with an oath. So that by two immutable things, you can know that you're sure in the covenant of God. It's more certain. It's got a different commitment. God gave his only son to torture and murder to put his covenant into force. What have you done to put your covenant into force? I do. A signature? How about the blood of your only begotten son when he's the perfect Jesus of Nazareth? Different conditions. God required his son to perform the conditions for you. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Amen. Jesus Christ fulfilled the conditions for us. Oh, the, oh, I know. There's an old covenant that said, do this and live. But you know what it was for, don't you? It was a schoolmaster to get our attention that we need something better. And the New Testament is that something better. There's a different conveyance. Do you want the conveyance of the Old Testament? Middle East sand? Or do you want the conveyance of eternal heaven, a heavenly country, Amen. and a city that hath foundations whose builder and maker is God? If we wrongly confuse or mix the covenants, we'll end up in heresy. That's what Jesus explained to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. The greatest enemies of the gospel, the Jews and the Catholics, have confounded the covenants. The Jews wickedly held to animal blood, denied the prophecies of their Messiah, and killed Jesus of Nazareth by missing the covenant difference. The, Jew, the Jewish legalists would use any angle they could. If it was John chapter 8, they said, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. Then in John chapter 9, they, they said, when they were being pushed by the man born blind, they said, we be Moses' disciples. They'll grab anything they can. We're Moses' disciples. The Catholics hold a priesthood. They have an altar. And they use incense and musical instruments and other junk from the Old Testament. Dispensationalism, which is just another name for Zionism, confounds or mixes covenants for Jewish fables. Pre- and post-millennialism are wrong by misapplying many covenant promises that are fulfilled in the spiritual nature aspect of the New Testament church and kingdom of Jesus Christ. Presbyterians, I'm asked this often, I was asked it this week. Presbyterians base their baptism on the Old Testament. You say, how do they get sprinkling? Ezekiel chapter 36, it's not from the New Testament. Why do they do infants? Because you circumcised infants. Presbyterians get their infant baptism out of the Old Testament. Why they do infants and why they do it by sprinkling. They believe in covenant salvation entirely different than what I'm preaching to you. When I say covenant salvation, we mean the everlasting covenant of grace of Almighty God in Jesus Christ for our benefit. They mean that if you'll get those little kids of yours baptized, that puts them in the covenant and they'll be regenerated in time and saved. Sabbatarians like Seventh-day Adventists, where do you think they get their ideas of the seventh day and the Sabbath? Because they get the covenants confused. They're still under the old. I write them every week of my life and tell them, whenever you want to become a New Testament Christian, I'm available to help you. But right now you're pretending to be an Old Testament Jew following Moses and worshiping at Mount Sinai. If you'll come over to Mount Zion with me, I'll baptize you. Right. It's ridiculous. Amen. 
They, they got the covenants messed up, mixed up. Right. Hold on. Why do many Christians use musical instruments? Because Moses' old covenant used them. Right. Many today, even Baptists, study the tabernacle and want to revive Old Testament ordinances to play with. Here's the last point I'm going to be able to make. God doesn't change. God doesn't change. God does not, this is fact too. God does not change, but his revealed form of worship may and does change even greatly. He doesn't change, but his form of worship changes. Grab the profound difference between these two things against heretics' claims. They will say to you, so you believe God changes. No, I didn't say that. I said his form of worship changes. His covenants change. He never changes. He just changes the amount that he's going to reveal to men that make up his church. Get, that, get this down pat. It's just like eternal sonship heretics accuse us of denying the Trinity when we're the only ones that truly define the Trinity as all three members are unbegotten, infinite, eternal, I am that I am, Jehovah God. But they say that we, we deny the Trinity. So these people will say that we deny God because he changes. He does change. Thank you, Lord. Do you remember the five houses? Jacob got up one morning and poured a little bit of oil on some stones and called it Bethel, house of God. But then Moses made a tabernacle. Then Solomon built a temple. Then Zerubbabel built another. And we're in the temple of God this morning. Those are five houses of God. And... This is rather different from a pile of stones with a little bit of oil poured over it. And it certainly is better than Solomon's temple. God isn't hid away in some compartment called the Holy of Holies that only a high priest can go into once a year with bells on his feet and, an and a rope around his ankle to drag him back out when he dies. We get to go to God directly. Amen. Every day, every hour. From John the Baptist to the Apostle Paul's Reformation, worship changed. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Amen. There's a statement in the Bible about change. There's Jesus telling the woman of Samaria, Woman, the hour cometh, and the Father seeketh such to worship him that's not done in Mount Gerishim of the Samaritans and it's not done in Jerusalem by the Jews. Because a change is coming. Paul said the ordinances of the Old Testament were imposed on the Jews until the time of Reformation. So never forget that. So significant was the change from the Old Testament to the New Testament and how we worship God. It was called a shaking of the heavens and the earth in Haggai. And the Apostle Paul pulls Haggai 2, 6 through 9, sticks it right in the end of Hebrews chapter 12 and says this is the fulfillment of it. The putting away of the Old Testament, the embracing of the new. Wherefore, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We have the final form of worship. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Amen. We all do extol thee, thou leader triumphant. Let's worship him acceptably with reverence and godly fear under the new covenant, which is but the final, new, clear, plain revelation of the underlying everlasting covenant from eternity. Paul said, because we have this covenant the way that it's been given to us, we use great plainness of speech. Right. I want to make it so simple for you. Great plainness of speech. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with a veil over his face because there was so much glory from that old covenant. 
And Paul would teach that that veil is still upon the hearts of the Jews because they cannot see clearly. But the Gentiles see clearly, and we use great plainness of speech. I want to make it as simple as I possibly can for you. Do you know that you, were, you have been talked about behind your back? You have been talked about behind your back in eternity past when Almighty God assigned the Word of God to come as the Lord Jesus Christ and to lay down His life in this world for you by name, and it was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is glorious doctrine. Amen. Stand with me, please. <clears throat>